I would tell you we're on page three, but apparently different editions have different page numbers. You're, they're in four. Okay, you're either on three or on four, but you have to know which one you're on. <laughs> 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 Don't okay. If your smartphone is in this room and it's not this one recording, then it should be in that bit. Otherwise, my obsessive compulsive disorder will flare up, and I don't know. It's not good. Okay. So we are now going to start um, what I deem the second unit of chapter one in the sheets. You got the sheets? Yes. Okay. You didn't get the sheets? They're off the sheet in Okay. In the phone box. Under the phones. <laughs> the phones serve as a protective layer. <laughs> the clipper for the phones. The the worksheets, the holy worksheets. That's right. Okay. Oh, okay. I copied these. Okay. Anybody else need? She had special notes on my page, anyways. Okay. How far did you guys get with this? It doesn't. Oh, with the notes. Page four to six from its snap. Okay, fine. So basically... Okay, fine. All right. So we had a bunch of questions. I am not going to recap the questions that the altar had asked in the first part of chapter one. Why am I not going to do that? Three reasons. One, if I do that, that'll end up becoming the whole class. I have experience with this idea of recapping. When you recap complicated things in class, what happens? People ask questions, clarifications, and then 45 minutes later, we're still recapping. Number two. Okay. If we start recapping, okay, how do I put this? If we start recapping the questions, I'm gonna be tempted to start answering the questions. And I don't have the self-control not to do that. So that's my personal problem. Because okay? I really want to tell you all the answers to all the questions. And that does, that's not very educational. And number three, um, I do want to finish chapter one this week. And I know it doesn't look like there's a lot we have to get through. But there is actually a lot we have to get through. Because some of these ideas need a lot of explaining. So... If we spend the time doing the recap, we're not going to get finished by this week. If we don't finish by this week, we can't start chapter two for next week. And then that would be bad because then we're coming basically up to Rosh Hashanah. And then the break, yeah, we want to. Creating a bad precedent. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. The explanation of the questions raised above, whatever those questions were, is to be found in light of what Rabbi Chaim Vital wrote in Shari Kedusha and in Eitz Chaim Portal 50, chapter two. Okay. Well, that's some useful information. Please raise your hand if you know who Reb Chaim Vital was. Okay, good. Reb Chaim Vital, what? This is important. Reb Chaim Vital was a Kabbalist who lived in Svas. And he is the, was the chief disciple of a Kabbalist known as the Arizal. Okay. Raise your hand if you've heard of the Arizal. Okay. 
Raise your hand if you know what Arizal stands for. It's like, you sort of know? Okay. Sort of doesn't count. It does in certain contexts, but not in this particular context. You know? Okay. Never mind. Okay. There are two versions of what it stands for. One version is, it's an acronym, it's in Hebrew. One version is it stands for Ha'ashkenazi Rabbi Yitzchak Zechreina Levracha, which means the Ashkenazic Rabbi Yitzchak, that was his name, his memory should be for blessing. Now, why is it important to know that he was a rabbi? Because like, we always want to make sure people know they're a rabbi, so we put rabbi in front. His memory should be for blessing because that's what we say after someone's passed away. So clearly he wasn't called the Arizal when he was alive. Why do we need to say that he was Ashkenazi? So you see which way he follows no, because he grew up in Egypt among Sephardim and then moved to Tzfas where everyone was Sephardi and so he stood out because he was Ashkenazi. Okay. What? He, his, I remember correctly, his father died, his mother moved to Egypt to be supported by her brother and I think they were Sephardi and so he was raised among Sephardim but he was from, his father's family was Ashkenazi. Luria is an Ashkenazi family. So the other is that the Aleph stands for the godly, Eloki. The godly Rabbi Yitzchak, his memory should be for blessed. Also, the word Ari in Hebrew means lion. And this was taken so seriously that his disciples were known as the lion cubs. <laughs> the Guri Ari in Hebrew. Okay. Now, the Arizal is very famous. He grew up in Egypt. He got married at a very young age. I don't remember how young, but very young age. And basically, he's... He went into business for a little bit and decided that business is not for him. He's going to become a mystic and a Torah scholar. Torah, actually, a Torah scholar than a mystic. And then he spent a lot of time studying Torah and being a mystic in Egypt. And um, after many, many years of living in Egypt, he moved to Tzfas. And there was a circle of Kabbalists. I mean, they didn't literally sit. I mean, maybe they did literally sit in a circle, but it's called the circle because we're a little tight-knit group. Um, and... In Sfas, this is in the this is in the late 14, early 1500s, um, was like the the heyday of Kabbalah in Sfas. Um, there was so much Kabbalah being taught, and the the the, the, the so to speak the chief of all the Kabbalists, the one who was considered to be the most authoritative, his name was Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, and he had a circle of Kabbalists, and the Rizal came and he sat in the group, and um, he listened, and then. Um, a little while later, Moshe Kodavero, and also known as the Ramak, that's an acronym for his name, he passed away. And then the Rizal opened his mouth. And then all of the other disciples in the circle went, Ugh. they didn't realize that the Arizal was so amazing. And the Arizal re- revolutionized all of Kabbalah. And for the next two years, he gave classes in Kabbalah to a select group of students known as the Lion Cubs. How old was he when he did that? 37-ish. And then he died. I think at 39. I think remember it's 39, 38, something so like that. He only taught. So all of the teachings of the Rizal are from two years worth of classes. Wow. And then those teachings spread like wildfire and took over the entire Jewish world. Right. Now, because it's hard to explain what the revolution of the Rizal is in Kabbalah, we're going to touch on it a little bit when we get to chapter two. But for, as an analogy, everyone's heard of Albert Einstein? 
and even if you don't know enough about a lot about physics, you do know that there was physics before Einstein, there's physics after Einstein, and like Einstein changed a lot of stuff. Okay, probably heard of theory, theory of relativity and equals mc squared, and even if you don't fully understand what that means, you know those are big deals, and we don't do physics the way we used to anymore. Okay, so the Arizal did to Kabbalah kind of what Einstein did to physics. And, and when was this? Like what time period? 1500s, early 1500s, early, early 1500s. Now, this of course raises the question, who's the Arizal that he gets to just totally revolutionize all of Kabbalah, right? So, in order to understand that, we need a little bit of background on Kabbalah. In general, there are four ways of approaching the Torah, four methods. They're also called, often called four levels of Torah study, different ways. Um, they're known by an acronym, which is PARDES, which I'm sure people have heard, but you will now hear my take on it. Okay. Um, PARDES literally means orchard. Okay. The first level is called, if I can describe the first level, the first level is where you do what? You read the text, and what do you try to do? What? Understand. Try and understand it. That's right. You learn the text and try and understand it. That's called pshat. Pshat literally means straightforward. It does not mean literal. Right? If someone writes a text and then use a metaphor, clearly the metaphor is meant to be taken as a metaphor, not literally. Right? See the class we had last week about metaphor configurative language. So pshat means I'm learning the text to understand the straightforward meaning. I'm trying to understand the text as it is. Then there's another way of learning Torah where I'm trying to see how Torah is all interconnected. So an idea which is explained one place is hinted to at another place. Okay. Now, in order to learn Torah that way, I need to know two things. I need to know what it says in the other place, and I need to know the methods that the Torah hints to things. The most famous of this is gematria, where you use like the, 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 the numerical value of the letters to represent different things. Okay. But the key thing is if you're learning Torah this way, you need to already know the idea being hinted to independently, and you need to know that the methods that the Torah hints to an idea in another place, they're not arbitrary. Okay. This, is known, this is known as remez, which means a hint. Okay. Then there's my favorite method. It says you can't have favorite books, but it doesn't say you can't have favorite methods. My, this method is where you make the following assumption that God... Infinite, wisdom is infinite and the text of the Torah is finite and by Torah I mean it doesn't matter whether it's the written Torah or the oral Torah whatever text you're learning is it's finite and so if there's infinite wisdom in a finite text is all of it being said outright in the open so what do you have to do? Right, but how do you do that? you have to search and look very carefully right? <laughs> what? Uh, what did you say? No. I was <laughs> you have to search very carefully, very thoroughly, very demandingly, right? Like you're on a treasure hunt. And this level is no, this level or method is known as drush, which literally means to seek out or to demand or to search. Books um, of this are often known as midrash, which some people just think means stories, but it doesn't. It just means any information that is not in the straightforward meaning, but after careful study and analysis, you showing that there's more there than the straightforward meaning. Okay. Um, and then the last is called Sod, which is a secret. Why is it a secret? Make something a secret. Not a lot of people know it. Okay, but what it's if we like start teaching? It's not there at all. 
Yeah, that's exactly, it's not there. Because if we start, here's the thing, if we start teaching the secret, is it still a secret? To some it is. What if we teach the secret to everybody? So what makes this level a secret is that you can't actually teach it to people. I mean, you can, but they won't understand it. Because this level of Torah study has to be experienced through divine inspiration. In other words, if I were to sit and explain to you the meaning of, according to Sod, of a particular verse or passage of the Talmud or whatever, even if you understood what I was talking about, you wouldn't really know what I'm talking about. Moreover, I wouldn't know what I'm talking about because neither you nor I have divine inspiration. You have to basically have be a, a, a kind of a mini prophet in order to really understand Sod. Because to Sod, it has to be experienced by the soul rather than understood with the intellect. Can you go back to dra- trash, Trish? Yeah. I don't understand how they interpret if they're looking around. Well, you have to know, like, how does God, it's like, after being in this class for a while, you'll get the hang of like wh- how I speak and what I'm trying to get at. So after having studied the Torah a lot, you start to realize, okay, like he has a certain way of talking. And, like, if he did something a little odd, that means there's something else going on. Or the Talmud has a standard way of approaching it, and here it didn't do that. And through that, somebody can embed layer upon layer upon layer of meaning in a finite thing, right? We call this in, in, in um, subtext. But you can only get at the subtext if you're familiar with the style of the text and its context. Whereas, so, even if someone explains it to you, you're not going to really get it because you need to have, okay? I'll give you an analogy for Sod. Have you ever heard any of your teachers in yeshiva or in the Chabad house or anywhere ever talk about either marriage or parenting? Yes. Do you think you understand what they're talking about? So on like some level, you're not, you don't not understand, right? I mean, it's clearly like you're, you speak the language, right? But it's going to be entirely different when you actually experience it for yourself, right? So does the kind of thing that if you don't experience it for yourself, you don't really know what it's talking about. And that's why we call it mystical. Kabbalah is so. That's actually why the word Kabbalah means Kabbalah. means receive. You have to receive it. You can't, like, figure it out on your own. Okay. So in general, the study of Kabbalah is not appropriate for most people. I'm not getting into whether it's forbidden, prohibited, but in general, just a, a certain honest assessment of yourself is if, if you have a study that's speaking about things that you can only really appreciate if you yourself experience them through some sort of prophecy and you don't have prophecy, then it's kind of foolish to like saying, well, the this thingy then moves to this thingy and then the other thingy turns around like, like you don't really know what you're talking about. Why did you say Kabbalah is so? Because Kabbalah can only really be understood if you have a minor form of prophecy. That's what makes it a secret. Like, I could give you a whole class of Kabbalah right now, and you wouldn't know what I'm talking about, and I wouldn't know what I'm talking about. We would just be parroting. Yeah. So we divide Kabbalists into two, two categories. Kabbalists who have or are aspiring to be somewhat prophetic, what we would call true Kabbalists, and people who like to study Kabbalah, disregarding the fact that they don't really know what they're talking about. Okay. Now, so where do their reasons get all this, all this information from? Uh, science fiction. Science fiction. Now, generally, 
generally there's um, a method of transmission in which this happens. Um, a standard method is using the um, prophet Elijah, Eliyahu Navi, that God uses the prophet Eliyahu Navi, who since passed on, to transmit to the soul of whatever Kabbalist who's really getting divine inspiration their mystical knowledge. Okay? So the Arizal's teachings are all said to be Mepi Eliyahu, from Elijah the prophet. Now what does that mean? It means God used the soul of Elijah as a conduit to reach the soul of the Arizal. Pop quiz, where did the Baal Shem Tov get Chassidus from? I told you this before. What? No. He got it from another teacher. Eliyahu's teacher. Achia Shiloni. Right? So, for, to convey Chassidus, whatever Chassidus is, which we're not going to talk about that right now, whatever Chassidus is, in order to get that to the Baal Shem Tov, God actually had to use a higher level soul than what he used for the Arizal. But we'll get back to the Arizal now. Okay, now. The, how, what did the Arizal do in order to merit this tremendous revelation, which revolutionized all of the knowledge of mysticism, Kabbalah, and Judaism? What did he do to make himself a fitting vessel, fitting receptacle for this? Take fast. a guess. No, he didn't fast. <laughs> he did study Torah. What part of Torah did he study? And how did he study it? What? The Zohar. He studied the Zohar, and how did he study it? Okay. Guess. Like there's different ways of studying things, right? He wrote it. Out. No, no. He, stu <laughs> he, he studied. He studied it by noticing every single nuance. Very often, when you study something, yeah, you generalize, you summarize, you say basically, right? Now that makes things easier because what that means that you actually have to process less. But imagine you're reading a book. And every single time the author uses a different word, which in context sounds like a synonym, you say, no, 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 this means there's a different idea because if it was the same idea, it would have used the exact same word. Imagine you read a book like that, in that style. Or every time the author repeated an idea, you'd say, well, well if it's repeated, it has to be, there has to be a reason. Or every time the author spelled something differently, because in Hebrew you have variants of spelling, you can have the same word and spell it differently. Put an extra, put a, put, above and take out of of. Imagine you spent time being obsessed and bothered by that to the point of losing sleep over that. That you have to be very involved in such a, in the book, right? That's how the Arizal studied the Zohar. Every nuance to him was a matter of life and death. And that's not enough. The other thing that he did is he had a joy in doing mitzvahs. How much joy did the Arizal have in doing mitzvahs? So the Rizal, the Rizal's joy in doing mitzvah was such that doing a mitzvah was more joyous than any other human activity could possibly be. So when the Rizal said a bracha, when the Rizal read Shema, when the Rizal took the love to him, that was like infinitely more joyous than say, marrying off your children or something. And it's not that that happened automatically, he worked on appreciating mitzvahs to the point that it was that joyous. So in the merit of his devotion to studying the Zohar and having such <laughs> I hope this is like just like... it sounds like Hashem's knocking on the door 
I thought those were the feelings of guilt that Jews have, but okay. So the, uh, the tremendous joy that the Rizal had in doing mitzvahs, and he worked to bring himself to that joy, those made him a fitting receptacle to have these revelations that totally transformed the understanding of Jewish mysticism. So if you want to become a true Kabbalist, that just gives you some avenues to pursue. Okay. But he was still born with that kind of like... Yes, he was. Right. It's not that. Remember, was like this. It's not that everybody can be the Arizal, but the Arizal still had to do something to become the kind of person who could receive those revelations. Yes. Are prophets tzaddiks? Not necessarily. If you look in the laws of prophecy, which are codified by the Ram, which I recommend doing because we throw around prophecy a lot, and it's a very vague thing, and it's important to know that in Judaism, like which we have laws of kosher, we have laws of prophecy, because if if, if there's all if this whole religion is prophetic, it's very important to know who's a real prophet and who's a charlatan, right? Because we have to yes. listen to prophets. So there's the laws of prophecy codified by the Rambam. Where's the Rambam here? Anyway. There's, there's a set, of, oh, there it is. Those brown books at the bottom. So there's the laws and the foundations of the Torah. It's in one of those books. Chapter seven through 10, the laws of prophecy. So if you learn those laws of who's qualified to be a prophet and you learn the Tanya, you'll see that using Tanya definitions, a Bainini could be a prophet. The prerequisite, for, the prerequisite of righteousness is just the righteousness of a Bainini, whatever that is. I'm not saying that being a baby makes you a prophet. I'm just saying yeah, 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 yeah. you don't need yeah. to achieve tzaddik to be prophetic. Yeah. So does that mean that Mashiach could be a baby? No. No. Because while it is the case that to receive prophecy, you don't need to be a tzaddik. To be a, to, to be a, um, a, a soul that leads the souls of Israel, as we learn in chapter 2, um, that you actually do need to be a tzaddik. Oh, but we're not in chapter two. So. We're not in chapter two. So, yeah. All right, so that's the Arizal. The Arizal wrote down none of his teachings. In fact, we only have three pieces of writing from him, which are three poems relating to Shabbos. Um, so do we have a sitter with English translation? Yeah. If I could have that, please. I just want to give you a little taste of the Arizal. Writings, rest. So, if you would like to know some of the writings of the Arizal, where you get a set of writings of the Arizal, it's not the writings of the Arizal, it's the writing his students wrote down what he said. We don't have his physical writing. Right. The only thing that he actually wrote himself were these three poems about Shabbos. We say one Friday night at the Friday night meal, one by the Shabbos day meal, and one by the yes, afternoon sir. meal. Yes. So I will translate so that you can get some sense. I will cut away with songs of praise in order to enter the gates of the holy apples. You know what the gates of the chamber of the holy apples are? I don't know either, but in order to get inside, (laughs) you need to to cut away with songs of praise. We hereby invite her to the festive table, the beautiful candelabra shining on our heads. Now, I don't know about you, but at my Shabbos table, the candelabra is not on my head. Between right and left, the bride approaches, adorned in ornaments, jewels, and robes. The husband embraces her through this gathering which brings her joy. They will be utterly crushed. Which one is this? This is Azamar Bishwachan, yeah. They cry in despair, yet they are null and void. But the faces are renewed, souls and spirits too. (laughs) This is like very helpful, right? It goes on for a while. 
So, but it's in Aramaic, and we sing it, so no one pays attention. They don't know what it means. But I don't know how you're supposed to get those words out of your mouth. What? Oh, you, you just have to speak Aramaic. <laughs> okay. Um, so, but the Arizal had many students, and they wrote things down. The main student who collected the Rizal's teachings and disseminated them was Reb Chaim Vital. So whenever it says Reb Chaim Vital writes or Reb Chaim Vital says, it's really code for the Arizal. Okay, so when it says here, found in light of what Reb Chaim Vital wrote, it's not Reb Chaim Vital's ideas, it's the Arizal's ideas. But the Arizal didn't come up with these ideas. Where'd he get it from? Hashem. Hashem via the prophet Eliyahu because he had such joy in mitzvahs and he learned Zohar so carefully. So that's where, this idea, that's where these ideas come from. Now, if you open up those books and you read those books there, the Shari Kedush and the Yitzchayim, and you read it, you're just going to have words that you don't really understand what they mean. Why? Because it's Kabbalah. Kabbalah is sowed, which means, unless you're prophetic, you don't really know what it's talking about. Okay. So why write it down? For other people who are going to become Kabbalists. The Arizal had a project, which is to make as many people into true Kabbalists as possible because he saw that as a necessary precursor to the coming of Mashiach. Because Mashiach, one of the things that's true about the coming of Mashiach is that the knowledge of God will fill the earth like the water covers the sea. And that basically means everybody's prophetic. So getting as many people to be as close to that as possible is on your way. So he was very in favor of spreading Kabbalah as far and wide. But I mean, if you can't can't learn it from reading it, you have to experience it, why write it down? Because... You can, you, 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 because you still, you, let me put it to you like this. This is a little bit cheesy, but has anyone here been to a halacha class? Yeah, you have a halacha class? Okay. So there's an experience of learning halacha where like you grow up religious and so you kind of know what Shabbos is already. You're learning, so you're learning about stuff that you're familiar with. And you, you learn new stuff because just because you grow up keeping Shabbos doesn't mean you know all the laws of Shabbos. There's a lot of laws, you might not know them. But because you grew up in a, the basic, the, the atmosphere of Shabbos, you have some kind of orientation, some kind of um, grounding as to what we're talking about. But then you take someone who's never heard of Shabbos, never really seen Shabbos, and you start teaching the laws of Shabbos, they, they have no way to process that. And even if you get them to remember all of what's written, they don't really know what it means, okay? So there's an interplay between the book study and the experience, right? It's very rare that a person can grow up religious and know all the laws of Shabbos by observing their parents. A, their parents might not be doing everything right. B, even if they are, it doesn't mean that the child is paying attention to things and processing the right way. But the fact that they grow up that way does give them a, or, uh, a grounding to allow them to process the book learning properly. And so writing down is a helpful way to communicate and teach, but the people you can teach are people who are at least can reach these states of quasi-prophecy. Regular people who are just smart won't really get it. That make sense? A little bit. Right. So there's in the back, there's in the back. And, and there's a whole discussion, like what you need to do prepare your, to, to make yourself able to understand it, then how do you process it, and back and forth. I'm not a capitalist, I never really, I've looked things up. Um, and the reason is that Chassidus borrows from Kabbalah to explain itself, what the Altarib is doing. Okay. Chassidus is not Kabbalah. Hence, we're learning Chassidus, and you're not all Kabbalists, and I'm not a Kabbalist, and you're not prophetic, I'm not prophetic. Chassidus is something that any Jew can get. Chassidus borrows from all levels of the Torah and all aspects of the Torah in order to explain itself. 
And so sometimes what Chassidus does is it uses ideas in Kabbalah, and then the Chassidic Rebbe's will explain those ideas in a way that make, brings the chas, the way the, the way they communicate some notion of Chassidus out to the person. And the stuff that is nothing really helping with Chassidus, they don't really get. Which is why if you ask people who study a lot of Chassidus to explain certain Kabbalistic concepts, you get one explanation. If you ask people who study Kabbalah, you get a different explanation. It's not that they're contradictory, but it's like the difference between asking a, a, um, someone who paints houses for a living and an artist to describe paint. Like it is slightly, the, the way they relate to it is different, the way they're using it is different. So they focus on different elements. So what the Alkrib is doing is saying, there is this concept in Kabbalah. I'm not going to explain to you the concept of Kabbalah. I'm going to take that idea of Kabbalah and use it to ground this idea of Chassidus that I want you to know. So the idea is originally found in Kabbalah, but I'm going to take it and borrow it and explain it in such a way that it gets the point of Chassidus across. Right. Which of course means now I need to get to what is Chassidus different than Kabbalah, which we mentioned a little bit what Chassidus was earlier in a previous class. Okay, I'm going to repeat it. Okay. Chassidus is the idea that the entire Torah is about one thing. What? It didn't, isn't the story said about the Torah? Right. The entire Chassidus is like this, yeah. It, it, it's it's the, the, when the Baal Shem Tov's father was dying. How old was the Baal Shem Tov's father when the Baal Shem Tov's father died? Does anyone know? How old was he? When the Baal Shem Tov's father died, how old was he? No, the Baal Shemto's father, how old was the Baal Shemto's father? I was like <laughs> Around 102. Are you serious? Yes, the Baal Shemto was two, and the Baal Shemto, yeah. You had him at 100? Yes, like Avraham. What? It was also a miracle. There's a whole story of the Baal Shemto's birth. Yeah, that's also a miracle. But we don't have time for all the stories. How old was his mother? 90. Just what? like Avraham. Yeah, just like Avraham. Yeah. Where do you get the story from? Because we have, like, we have the... Already by the Baal Shem Tov's disciples there. Because you never read Shivchei Baal Shem Tov and the other books of Baal Shem Tov's disciples. Yeah. Baal Shem Tov was not a normal human being by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, so his father died before he was three years old. Um, there's another manuscript which says five, but the standard one seems to be three. Um, and his mother died shortly after that, and he was actually raised as an orphan by the community. Everyone thought he was weird because he would just go out into the forest by himself. Anyway, so the, the, his, his father was told to tell the Baal Shem Tov um, as his dying message, not to be afraid, not to be afraid of anyone except for God Himself, and then he added and loved every Jew with the entire depth of your soul, entire uh, depth of your heart. And that's the Hochsid. The Hochsid says there's nothing other than God, and the most important thing is a Jew. That's it. And and the deeper dimension is that really those are the same thing. That not that that a Jew and God are so intrinsically linked that they're inseparable. That's what, and the whole point of Chassidus and every version of Chassidus, every branch of Chassidus is all about trying to communicate that message in a different way, in a different manner. Yeah. Um, is there a reason why we don't know like, the names? Like, do we know, you know the names of the Baal Shemtov's Yeah, we know. Are they? Eliezer and Sarah. Are, but they're not commonly given to... Sure they are. Are they? I mean, in Chabad? No, because we have a whole, like, whole family of Chabad or that we tend to, but like in different other things, yeah. Maybe. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, the Baal Shem Tov would sign his name, Yisrael Ben Rabbi Lazar. Yeah. Did his dad tell him love everyone or love every Jew? Every Jew. 
every Jew. But one of the interesting things, and, and we're gonna, we're gonna, when we get to the end of chapter one, which is the only place in Tanya where non-Jews are directly addressed, we're gonna talk more about non-Jews. I know this is the second time you asked about Jews versus everyone. No, it's fine. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about it when we get to the end of chapter one. Um, but I will tell you a, a good story of the Baal Shem Tov, which, um, and about the significance and about the significance of non-Jews' ability to appreciate godliness. The Baal Shem Tov for a while worked as a shochet, as a person who slaughtered. Now, the thing to understand is that in. Remember I said before about how shechting, way back when we spoke about language, how shechting, which means slaughter, actually has a, has a different connotation in Hebrew. It means to improve. So traditionally, a shochet has to be the most pious, God-fearing man in the community. Okay. In other words, to the extent that the standard rule was that in terms of God-fearing people, you want the shochet is number one, the school teacher is number two, the rabbi is number three. Because the rabbi is just like dealing with law. Like, you know, it's the chicken kosher or something. But the shochet, the shochet, I mean, on a very practical level, only he knows if he's doing it right. And on a deeper level, he's, he's turning something that's an animal into the thing that's going to feed the community. And so his mindset has a tremendous influence on everybody. Unfortunately, in the modern era, you know, with all the factory farming and the factory shechting, like, it's not always the case that every shochet is the most, you know, outstanding God-fearing. I'm not saying that they're not God-fearing, but it's not like they're necessarily... But in the old country, in, in Russia, in Poland, in Ukraine, in Morocco, in Syria, in Iraq, to be a shochet meant you were considered, people looked at you as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an example of a God-fearing person. So would that line up in prostitute or in Judaism? What? No, that's just the way, that's the way, that's the way it was up until like modernity. That was just, in, in, it doesn't matter the town, that was just the way, yeah. The, 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 the shocha was considered to be, you know, a school teacher entrusting them with the lives and the souls of children. Anyway, um, so he was a shochet, and he um, he had a he had a um, so he would he would come to he would, he would he would he would travel around a few different towns and he would he would. The way it worked in those days is if you, had a, you wanted to eat chicken, you brought your chicken to the shochet and you shechted the chicken and you took it home. That's the way it worked. So um, someone, so after he stopped being a shochet, um, someone else became a shochet in that town and he, he, uh, he went to bring some chickens. So, so someone went to go bring chickens to the new shochet and this person, um, there was a there was a non-Jew who like worked in the Jewish community, and he looks at this person and says, how and he says he looks at the person how can you bring how can you bring your chickens to this other person to shecht? He's not a valid he's not a valid shecht he's not a valid person to shecht me. And I think what you're you're not Jewish like how do you know what's what's a good shecht and a bad shecht? He says well because I I hung around they used to before the Baal was famous they just called him Sulik which just is a cute for Yisrael which was his name because. I remember Surah the Shaykhit. And when he would sharpen his knife, he would cry tears, beseeching God that everything should go properly. This man, he just sharpens his knife. He doesn't cry. So he can't be, a, can't be appropriate Shaykhit. So this, this person appreciated that the, what the Baal Shem Tov was doing with the meat is such a spiritual thing and such a lofty thing that the Baal Shem Tov, in preparing himself, brought him to tears. And he appreciated there's a godliness to that. Um, and the Baal Shem Tov was, 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 was very... 
um, one of the things, and again, it's not in Tanya, but one of the things about Shabbos Shabbos is about how everything contains godliness and everything can appreciate godliness, and that's true even of non-Jews, etc. And uh, this story got passed down through Chassidus that, that here you have the Jew doesn't appreciate the difference between the Baal Shem Tov being the Shaykhet and this other guy. And then the non-Jew, you know, with all we're going to learn tying not having godly souls, still was able to appreciate that there's something special about how the Baal Shem Tov is approaching things, that there's something spiritual and mystical in how he's going about slaughtering chickens that's lacking this other person. Um, and that was always brought down that, you know, you have to, sensitivity is that you don't get by birth. You have to, you have to work on it. You have to develop it. Okay. So, What's this Kabbalistic idea that we're going to use or borrow to explain Chassidus? Is that in every Jew, whether righteous or wicked, whether tzaddik or Russia, there are two souls. As it is written, the neshamis, the souls which I have made, alluding to two souls. Okay. So the idea is that every Jew has how many souls? Two souls. I'm sure many of you have heard this before. Yeah, animal soul, godly souls, old news, right? Okay. So... I want to point out something that is very difficult that needs to be explained. The Talmud is thousands of years old. The Mishnah is, the Mishnah is basically 2,000 years old. There are parts that are 1,500 years old, but the Mishnah is 2,000 years old. The Mishnah already tells us that we have a Yetzir Tov, a good inclination, and a Yetzir an evil inclination. A force that drives us to do good and a force that drives us to do evil. Right? We already encountered the discussion of that in, right, in the first part of chapter 1. This, so this is a concept which is much more well-known, much more a part of the standard text that people read, and it's something the author has already brought up. And instead of bothering to answer all of our questions using the standard notions of good and evil inclinations, the author says, I'm going to go borrow some obscure Kabbalistic thing that nobody's ever heard of called Two Souls. What does that tell us about the concept of two souls? Is it the same as the standard concept of good and evil inclination? Or is it a different concept? It's a different concept. Okay? And that difference is so critical to the entire structure, entire build of the Tanya, that without that, the whole thing doesn't work. Now, if I ask most people who've heard of the idea of a godly soul and an animal soul and ask them to explain it, and then I ask them to explain the difference between the Yetzir Tov and Yetzir, good inclination and evil inclination, it gets very fuzzy very quickly. Now, if that's the case, can you really move on and understand the rest of the Tanya? Okay. So what we need to understand is what is the difference between saying you have a Yetzer, an inclination, versus you have a soul? So we're going to start with something that's more grounded and more concrete. Are you talking about Yetzirah and Yetzirah? Yeah. They're not the same thing. Because if they were the same thing, then we could just skip this whole... The, the Arizal has is this concept, like, well, just, just stick with the standard stuff that we've been doing with until now. In yeah. fact, if you... I'll tell you this very interesting thing, yeah? If you go outside of Chabad, the idea that you have a godly soul and soul is not like standard language. Just, it's not. People speak about it. You have a Yetzirah and Yetzirah. You have a, you know, they speak about your neshama, that everyone speaks about. But the idea that you have a godly soul and animal, like, it's just not the standard vocabulary. And there's a reason why it's not the standard vocabulary. It's an obscure Kabbalistic concept revealed by the Arizal from Ilya Alanovi. And other than the fact that the Alter Rebbe borrows it to explain Chassidus and Tanya, like, it would stay on the shelf and who else would know about it? Just 
you know, the Kabbalists. Like, there's a list of obscure Kabbalistic concepts that most people don't know about. And this would have stayed that way. Where do we get that? Do you have a Yetzirah and Yetzirah? That's in the Talmud. That's in the Mishnah. Yeah, that, that, that's classic, basic Judaism. Now, I'll tell you one other interesting fact. When the Rebbe would speak to children, he never used the language of godly soul and animal soul. The Rebbe never told children, you know you have a godly soul and an animal soul. He would always say that you have a Yitzhahara and a Yitzhotov, a good inclination and an evil inclination. Now, what does that fact tell us? Why would the Rebbe, who's very interested in teaching Chassidus, Right. It's not something a child can really process or fathom. Okay. So let's start with something basic. Animals, most animals, so we'll pick like say, a squirrel, but it doesn't matter which animal. Most animals have a drive to eat food and a fear of human beings, which is fine because they can just go to the food and away from the human beings. What happens if they encounter food in proximity to human beings? They have conflicting instincts. They're like food over human, you're saying. Right. So do they approach the food and the desire for the food overrides their fear of the human? Or does their fear of the human override the desire for the food to run away? Or do those two instincts like kind of cancel out and they like freeze or kind of move back and forth and aren't really sure what to do? Could you repeat that? Yeah, it does. The animal has a drive, wants to go towards the food, but is also afraid of the person. Okay. Well, if the food is right near the person then the conflicting instincts in the animal, right? Now, some animals, by the way, this is, by the way, how you domesticate animals. Some animals, you can get the point that their desire for the food overrides their fear of human. And you slowly, like, you can domesticate, you can slowly let the animal, like, see that getting a little closer is not so dangerous because the, the, the push, they override their desire, they override their fear of the human to get a little closer to the food, and they keep doing that, and they keep doing that. And eventually, what happens to the fear of the human being gets suppressed, and then they start developing positive associations with the person. You can domesticate. That's how people domesticate animals. Now, some animals you can't do that with. Right? Some animals, like maybe theoretically you could, but it takes long so people do it. But there's these conflicting instincts of yes, food, no person. Sometimes one overrides the other. Sometimes the other overrides one. Sometimes they're like in conflict and the animal's not sure what to do. Does that make sense? Okay. If we go down a level into the animal's psyche for a second, why does the animal want food? Like, what is it that's motivating the animal to, to pursue food? Survival. What is motivating the animal to avoid people? So fundamentally, is there a conflict of interests here between these two drives? Are they really in conflict? In practice, they're in conflict because the way they go about preserving the survival of the animal is different but the underlying agenda and goal is the same. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, what if you have a lion and a gazelle? Are there instincts if you go down to the core level, you know, fundamentally the same, or is there a fundamental conflict of interest there? Well, how does the lion survive? And how does the gazelle survive? By making sure the lion doesn't have food. So, well, that, for our purposes, that, yeah. So it turns out that the survival of one 
By the way, if you ever watch those nature videos where they like they they, they follow an animal and like the whole thing, so you know you know one of the tricks they do is that the camera focuses on one particular animal or group of animals, and those are the protagonists. And you're supposed to empathize with them, and so all the music is framed that way. But you could take the same footage and then do it on the other animals. So like, so, so if you're like watching the lioness who's like trying to feed her starving cubs, right? Then the fact that she doesn't catch the gazelle is such a tragedy. But then you could take the same footage in another program and follow the gazelle. The fact that the gazelle survives is such a triumph because literally the survival of one is endangering the life of the other. I mean, we don't think about it, but like every time a carnivore doesn't catch their prey, they're on the edge of survival. They're on the edge of starvation. That's what it's like to be a wild animal. Right, no, I agree that they want to survive. I'm just saying the survival of one comes at the expense of the other. That's all I'm saying. And, and survival of, of the gazelle comes at the expense of the grasses. The that's true, grasses. that's true. 100%. I'm not, I'm not making a moral statement. I'm just pointing out that the conflict between the squirrel's desire to get the walnuts and the desire to avoid you is not the same kind of conflict as the conflict between the lion and the gazelle. Because the squirrel ultimately could come, or maybe squirrels aren't sophisticated enough, but let's say, I don't know, um, sheep or dogs can come to the realization that if what right through through experience that my reason i'm a, like what I, i'm afraid of the person because the person is dangerous but it turns out the person is not so dangerous so then there's no reason to avoid the person i can have my food because what's fundamentally though that conflict is about two different ways of trying to achieve the same underlying goal but when you have two different animals the goals and predator and prey the goals are fundamentally different now you're right both want to survive but the survival of one means the lack of survival, the death possibly of the other. But in theory, that couldn't be dangerous? Maybe it could, it could. I'm just saying it's not inherently the case. So there, there is the possibility of, you know, if say the squirrel or dog was extremely sophisticated, could sit down and have some sort of like deep introspection about the nature of its desires and come to some way of prioritizing them, right? Maybe if that squirrel wasn't a squirrel, if it was, say it was a person who have many different desires that pull us in many different directions. But if we think about it, all of our desires tend to be fundamentally rooted in the same thing, which is a desire for some kind of thriving and well-being. Notice I didn't say survival here. Human beings are actually, and especially the way it's understood in do not want to survive. We want to thrive. Which is, which, well, there's a question of what constitutes thriving. Right, because thriving is a much is, is it's a much more abstract notion. But if, if if you bring a person and you say I will allow you to survive, but will not allow you to thrive, people rebel against that to the point that they're willing to die. Right, you know, give me liberty, give me death, dying for a cause, you know, you know, whatever the case may be. And people who cope with with horrific circumstances generally because they have found some way to conceptualize their existence as a thriving existence. You know, you can read books like Man's Search for Meaning, which is a good way of illustrating that. So human beings, we have a desire to thrive. Now, is it true, you know, and is it true that it's a big open question, it's a messy thing to figure out what really makes me thrive? I mean, it's true like when you eat candy, it feels pretty good, right? But in the long term, is that good for your overall health? <laughs> is it? 
No. Now, I'm not getting into the cost benefit of having the occasional candy. It might be worth it. Maybe the cost of the health ultimately contributes to the quality of life. I'm not getting into that, but, but it's a question. And so you can generally break down, broadly speaking, a person's desire to thrive into two basic approaches. There's two basic instincts of how to thrive. One is to zoom in and one is to zoom out. One is to focus more on the here, the now, the tangible, the concrete. And the other is to focus more on a broader span of time, the entire scope of your existence, the entire, all the different levels of your humanity. So for instance, why is it that on the one hand, people want to do things which are um, very, let's use the word fun, but, ha- but are not you know, good for you know, long-term you know, health or relationships or sense of personal integrity? And at the same time, we also want to have, you know, healthy, stable relationships, a sense of integrity and spirituality and purpose. And the reason is because although we're fundamentally driven for our desire to thrive, we have two different ways of conceptualizing thriving. One, by zooming into what's happening right now or focusing on only one part of our being, say, a sensation of taste, for instance, or a sensation of vision, or the intellect, or whatever it is. And the other is to, is to zoom out and say, wait, we're physical, we're spiritual, we're intellectual, we're emotional, we exist over a span of time, our, we precede our own birth and we succeed our own death, we have a life after, and taking the entire scope of our existence into account, and then trying to thrive from that perspective. Now, depending on which instinct is more dominant, you're gonna make different choices as to what you think is good for your thriving and flourishing. Let me give you an, an example. When a teenager rebels, why are they rebelling? Experimental. What? Experimental. To learn. See for themselves. Why do they have to rebel? I mean, it, it could be the case that if you have very oppressive parents or teachers or society, it doesn't let you experiment. But that's not always the case. Like sometimes you, people rebel even though they have very permissive societies and cultures. Like sometimes they rebel by going to a more oppressive and restricted society. Well, okay, so let's, obviously there's many ways of examining this. We're using this as an analogy. One of the aspects of our humanity is autonomy, making decisions for yourself. Okay. You develop that slowly, and then you get a big sense of it around becoming a teenager. Okay. Now, if you, in the, in the moment, as you kind of like first stumble upon the, the, the fact that you have a level of autonomous being that needs to be catered to, when you feel that very strongly, it's like an urge, you need to take care of it right away. What's the quickest way to exert your autonomy, to acknowledge your autonomy, to make your sense of I need to be autonomous feel good? To go against what, to go against what everyone else is telling you. Now, the thing is though, in the long term, is that a good way of meeting your need to be autonomous? No. No, because really if you go, if you broaden your perspective, what it means to be autonomous, it means to have a core sense of who you are, of your identity, of your purpose. And rebelling is just a way of feeding off of other people. It's like, you know, in high school, there's the people who wear the fashionable clothes and there's the people who rebel against that and all wear black because they're making a statement, right? But it's funny how you're all making the same statement. Right? Okay. So real autonomy comes like I have some sort of inner core of who I am, my own anchor. But you need a broader perspective on your own need for autonomy that a lot of teenagers don't always have. And so then they're trying to cater to the same thing, but from a more getting caught up in the moment perspective. 
And so you can really look at everything that way, or you can put it in another way that really life is about the choices between the easy and the stable. Things that take the entire picture into account are stable. Things that focus on the little part of the picture in the here and now, they're always easier. And most of our choices really boil down to what seems to meet my needs in an easier way, which what is going to be harder, but is ultimately more stable because it takes everything into account. Now, what do we call the part of ourselves that's driven to meet our need to thrive and flourish in the moment and not take the whole picture into account? We call that the Yetzir Hara, the evil inclination. That's called the Yetzir Hara. That's the one that drives us, it drives us, it motivates us, it pushes us to try and find our thriving and our flourishing, focusing on what's here now immediately available. Ultimately, is that good for us? No, right, that's, that's why it's called bad. <laughs> you, make, you make bad decisions that way. And then there's another part of us which tries to meet our thriving and flourishing by taking as much as possible into account. And what's that? That instinct, that inclination to do, to approach things that way is called the eights or tov. So let me give you, yeah. Um, there's like a mentality that I think has become very popular recently to um, tell people everything in moderation and you know, it's good to eat healthy but you should treat yourself occasionally. Like diets are not successful unless you have like, what they call that cheating, right? Or whatever, there's like a whole mentality that like, has lo- like it's important to give yourself a little bit of what sounds like you're describing the Zahara in order to sustain a, a like, big picture long-term use for toe. Is that just like totally contrary to... No, but I, I want to tell you a few stories, short little stories, and then I'll answer your question. So one, there was a cut. There was a Rebbe named the Kutzker Rebbe. The Kutzker Rebbe was... Um, shall we say, very interesting. And he was known for being an extremist. And people complained to him that the Rambam says one should always take the middle path, the path of moderation. Right? One should go down the middle, and you're an extremist. You're always to one, far to one side. And so the Kotzker Rebbe said, look outside in the street. Who goes in the middle of the road and who walks on the side? The horses go in the middle, and the people go on the side. What he's saying is that there's a kind of moderation where what you're basically doing is you're not taking a stand. You're, you're like, you're, it's, it's coming from a basic place of ambivalence. Whereas if you, something is really important, there is a kind of going 100% all the way if something's really important to you. Okay, that's one story. The other story is there was a, there was a chassid, who's a very interesting person. I mean, I, I tend to mispronounce his last name too with that. I apologize, his name is, was, his name has since passed on. Rabbi Meir Abu Hasera. Rabbi Meir Abu Hasera. He was Sephardi. Um, he, he, was, he was a, a, a chassid, Lubavitcher. Very interesting person. He wrote a, a, a very fascinating book, which if you're the artsy type and like things that you think you understand but you don't really understand, you have to read a few times to get what he's getting at. It's a very good book called The, the Possible Man. Impossible. The Possible Man. The Possible Man. But it's a, yeah. it's a good book, but it, it, it's, it's, it's artistic. Anyway, so he was very into healthy eating. That was actually, he was into healthy eating, and then he became into having a healthy soul. That's kind of how his life journey worked a little bit. 
And so he was like very, very careful with like, you know, getting sure like, you know, healthy food and like, I don't know, all the different diets and things and like really making sure that the food meets the needs of the body and blah, 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 blah. So someone told me that one time at a Fabrengan in his house, he used to have these very amazing Fabrengans. One time he told people, he was like, was late and he said, sometimes you need to take a piece of kugel, dip it in oil and eat it. Which means basically sometimes you need to take the things that you take most seriously and laugh at yourself. <laughs> like if you take yourself way too seriously about whatever your project is, you end up like having corrupting influence on yourself. So if you put all these things together, the idea is like this. Taking the big picture means take all these things into account. The fact that some things demand that you go 100% all the way. Some things mean you can't take yourself too seriously. And part of looking at things in the short term is not just short term, but it's also looking at it in narrow focus. And so in terms of, in terms of these things like cheat days or don't, you, know, you have to have a moderation, the question is not is that right or is that wrong? The question is where is it coming from? Moderation can be a way of looking at things in the short term. It can be a way of looking at things in the long term. It can be a way of looking at things in the short term. I don't want to make it too, too hard to make any serious commitments. Or it could be taking into account that I'm a complicated being and the way I feel today is not the way I'm going to feel for the rest of my life and therefore I should take an approach which takes the entirety of my complexity into account. Right? And part of that means that like, if I take myself too seriously, I might like, snap. So I need to like, develop ways of like, finding myself to be somewhat funny. Which is like a key to being, you know, taking a citizen to your life is knowing how to laugh at yourself. Because you are kind of funny. Everybody's funny. Okay. Fine. So, now, if you look at it, what's the underlying drive, though, of the Eitzahara and Yitzhah the way I explained it? What? That's how, but what is it trying to accomplish with that? The thriving, right? They both want, in some sense, the same thing. They just construe it, how to go about it differently. Which means, theoretically, could you get the Yitzhahara and Yitzhahara and sit down with a little mediation session and like, have them talk to each other and work it out and explain that really, like, yes, you want every moment to feel as good as it can, but it's kind of silly to exchange, to have like, moments that are really amazing and then have like, horrible emptiness afterwards. And, like, to get the fact that your Yetzirah could come to start to appreciate more your Yetzirah Tov and the Yetzirah Tov appreciates that you have to appreciate that like it's not just you flip a switch and you have this grand holistic perspective you have to work on it and they can kind of bring all the two parts of you into alignment does that make sense? you could do that right? because we're not squirrels or sheep we have the process to reflect on our own drives and develop more complex ways of dealing with them bring them into harmony okay good but you know why we can do that? Because fundamentally, are they trying to achieve conflicting things or the same thing? The same thing. In the sense, there's one soul that underlies both. There's one, the soul is what, what drives you, what gives you life, what gives you, what gives you your, 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 your whole sense of being and what you're all about. And what are you about? You're about thriving and flourishing. And you have two ways of going about that, two ways of thinking about it, two ways of, 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 of experiencing that. And the more mature you are, the more you can bring those things together. And if you are not mature, you can construe it as a war and you just have to prioritize one over the other. Right? You know, a mature person can kind of bring them in alignment. An immature person says, look, I have to listen to my Yetzir Tov and not listen to my Sahara. And like, that's fine. You talk to children that way. They understand exactly what you mean. Children want to have a fun time together on a family outing. And they also want a candy now. 
But here's the thing, if you keep screaming for candy now, we're not going to have a fun family outing, so which one should you listen to? They understand that message. There's no like deep. And as you become a mature person, you start to realize, as you go deeper about like, what do I really want? You start to realize that like, I have to find a way of like, meeting my need to thrive in a way that's more stable. And so my Yetzir Tov becomes more persuasive and the Yetzir becomes more open to appreciating that. And that's what we call mature people. Make sense? But that's all because it's all fundamentally the same soul, the same drive to thrive and flourish. Yeah, what? It doesn't. Mm-hmm. That's without the, the weird Kabbalistic idea that Dalton pulled off the shelf. The real Kabbalistic idea is that God, for some strange reason, took a lion and a gazelle and tied them together and said, have fun. Or, 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 or a chimpanzee and a salmon and tied them together and said, now you decide where to live. There's like a fundamental problem here. Wait, who? Comparing what to what? It, two souls mean that there's two fundamentally different agendas, different drives, different identities. And so now it's not a matter of like, okay, well, at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. And like, no, at the end of the day, we don't all want the same thing. Like, have you ever, have you ever tried working like conflict mediation with people? So there's, so there's a stage in which like, the conflict is secondary to like what they want. Like I want, I don't know, I want this and you want that. Like right now, like me and my neighbors were working out like should we build, should we not build, should they build that? It's a whole thing, right? And it's like, I'm not anti my neighbors, my neighbors are not anti me, but like I want what I want and they have what they want and we could hopefully work out a compromise of make everyone reasonably happy and not too annoyed with each other. What happens if you have a conflict goes on for a while? you get to a point where the underlying goal of each side is that they should win and the other side should suffer. And at that point, it's like, if, they, if you really bought into that 100%, there's not much to do. Now, if you can get people back from that point, if you have two fundamentally different agendas that there's no, there's no common ground, then what are you going to be in a state of perpetual war? And when you say that there's two souls, the idea is that there's two different creatures, two different entities, two different identities that want fundamentally different kinds of things. It's not about how we should go about it, it's about what really matters at all. Now, we don't yet know what those two different things are. We, I mean, we know their names. One is called the godly soul, one is called the animal soul. What is the godly soul want. Just take a wild guess. What? To be close to a chef. What does the animal soul want? To have a really good time. Okay. Now, we're going to get into more into this later, but I want to set the stage a little bit right now. The godly soul, it's easier, it's easier to start with the animal soul. The animal soul wants to thrive and flourish. Does it fundamentally care how it thrives and flourishes? It might have certain predispositions, but fundamentally, if it's thriving and flourishing, good. What does the godly soul want? Does it matter if it's thriving and flourishing? No. See, what, what, what is it? This, we often talk about our godly soul as our desire to like, do good things, and we feel good doing good things, but guess what that's actually we're going to learn? That's actually part of the animal soul. If it invo- and we're going to start, we're going to get into this. 
that the part of the person that cares about your own well-being in any sense is actually what? It's going to be the animal soul. Because a soul is not how you go about getting what you want. It's about who you are and what you care about fundamentally. If you have two souls, that means there's two different answers to who you are and what you care about. So one part of you is, is, is identified by caring about you and your thriving and flourishing. Now, the other part of you doesn't care about your thriving and flourishing. It cares about God, not Hashem. Whether you thrive and flourish, that's not really relevant. It doesn't matter. So now imagine those two sit down and have a meeting about how things should work. There's, there's not a lot of common ground. That could create problems. Now imagine they're stuck in the same body. And there's only one eye, and there's only one set of eyes, and there's only one mouth, and there's only one set of hands. Right? So they're going to have to learn to do what? Work together. Yeah. And that's the whole setup of the Tanya. It's not a matter of, there's plenty of books that they say, look, you want to feel good, you want to thrive, you want to flourish, being more spiritual, being more religious will do that for you. And here's how to process that and think about it. But that's not underlying the, the underlying conflict that's really creating all of the issues and being close to Hashem in our lives, which is that not all of us really cares about thriving and flourishing. There's a whole aspect of our being which just doesn't care whether we thrive and flourish. It's about God, 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 nothing else but God. It doesn't matter. And then there's another part that cares so much about thriving and flourishing and it's like, if God fits into that, great. If God doesn't fit into that, that's also fine. I'm not particularly predisposed to God one way or the other. That's going to create problems. Yeah. Is the, so the Yeah, but we, I, I don't want to get into what that means yet because like, okay. well, that's chapter two. I just want to focus on the idea that saying two souls is different than saying two inclinations. The way you deal with having two inclinations is that you can fundamentally appreciate that at their core, everybody wants the same thing because it's one soul, it's one drive. Yeah. So the way that we kind of frame the That's right. That's right. It's more technical, like in the in the metaphysics of how it works, but on a practical level, on a practical level, someone that only had a godly soul, we wouldn't speak of them having a yitzur tov. Really, there would be no like the concept of a yitzur tov comes into play in as much as you have an animal soul. Right. The metaphysics of exactly how that works, because there is a connection between the the yitzur tov, the good inclination, and the godly soul. I don't want to get into that right now. But yeah. So if I want to thrive and flourish, I want to really experience being alive for what it really is, there's two different drives as to what that means and how to go about that. One drives me to look at things in a broader, more holistic sense. And the other one drives me to look at things in a more narrower, in the moment, tangible sense. And that's one kind of conflict. And there's another conflict, which is who are you and what is, what is everything about? Is it about you or is it about God? Now, I'm, I'm being very vague in what that means. Yeah, I want to just point out one important consequence of this. Where's the time? You move the thing so I can't tell that. What? So we have five minutes, okay. So I want to point out a very important consequence of this. Okay?
when one of the one of the one of the one of the issues that people deal with is an issue of identity of who am I? Okay. Now, I don't want to get too far into this because it's like a whole thing, but but Torah in general and Chassidus in particular takes the view that there is an objectively right and wrong answer to those kinds of questions. So, for instance, if a chimpanzee wakes up one day and says, "I'm a dolphin," well, they're wrong. There's a classic story from Brussels Chassidus, which is that there was a prince who decided that he was a turkey. I mean, he can think he's a turkey, he can act like a turkey, he even, even like mess up with the psyche so much that he feels like a turkey, but guess what? He's not a turkey. There's something wrong. Okay. There is an objective answer to, right? So there's a question of what is my real identity, and then there isn't a right answer, and there's a wrong answer. You get closer, you get further of that, right? What does having two souls do to the question of what is my identity, who am I really? What does it do to that question? Yeah. That's for sure. But now let's take a step further. Because right. now we learned you have... Two. So who are you? You're two, maybe. Right. So now, right. So, so, so it's wrong to say I'm a soul because you're not a soul. You're a soul in a body. And that's important because being in a body does shape your identity. If you were a soul without a body, your whole identity would be very different. Mm-hmm. Okay. But now, so here's the question, who are you? Because you have two souls. And this is setting, see, and this is what, what Tanya is going to be touching. I mean, getting is the question of who you are is much more important and much more difficult and much more central than questions of what you want and how you feel and how you go about them. Because if you can get the clarity about who I am, that who you are ultimately in a real objective sense is how you subjectively relate to yourself, 99.9% of everything else, will, you'll be able to work out. And if that's not clear, then you might have 101 tricks and you know, hacks to make things work, but fundamentally you're, just, you're, you're holding everything together by the skin of your teeth. Because you don't really know what is going on. So you, what did you say about having two souls? So if you have two souls, the question, right? If you, if you just say you have one soul in a body, so you say, okay, well the correct answer is I am a soul in a body. But once you have your two souls, it's like a little trickier to answer the question, who are you? It does. But it, so I'll tell you the answer right now. The answer is you're a godly soul in an animal soul in a body. And it turns out that that has different ways of expressing itself and different ways of dealing with that. And, and that's a much messier answer, right? I'm a soul in a body is like, it also can be very fuzzy, but it's something that I think if you just let a person ponder, they would kind of figure out what that means. But I tell you, you're a godly soul in an animal soul in a body. It's like not really clear, like, what, is it, what does it mean a soul inside a soul? Like that's a weird, yeah, that's why we have a whole book. So it's no longer, what I'm saying, it's no longer about like the basic question that like, you know, what makes you feel really good? What gives you a lot of meaning in life? What makes you feel like things are going well? Is it more spiritual? Is it more physical? Is it more long-term? Is it more short-term? Those are important questions, but from the perspective of the Tanya, those are secondary questions that you'll easily be able to answer if you have answered the more fundamental question, which is, who am I really? What really defines my being? What is the ultimate thing that drives me? And if I can get clarity about that, 
then Mayitzar Yetzutov issue will, will resolve itself to a significant degree. Okay. Now, in order to do that, what we have to do is we have to discuss each soul separately. So the way this is going to work. Chapter one, we're going to discuss the, what's called, it doesn't call it yet the animal soul. We're going to discuss the animal soul and give a basic rundown of the animal soul. Then we're going to move to the godly soul. And we're going to have a very long description of the godly soul and everything in real, the reality of the godly soul. Now it's chapters two, three, four, and five. is an in-depth analysis of the godly soul and every aspect of its existence. But we're, gonna, we're treating it like a, like a, like a creature in a, in, a, in, a, in a lab, like a specimen. We're not looking at it in its natural habitat clothed in the body. We're just looking at it kind of on its own. Then six, seven, and eight, we're going to go back and we're going to look at the animal soul and really flesh that out. Then in chapter nine, we're going to stick it all in the body and see what happens. And let's just say it's very messy. And then we can come back and deal with the questions that we had in the beginning. Okay, I want to just say why that's the order and then we'll, end, and we'll continue tomorrow. It's about the specific aspects of... The reason we start with the animal soul is because working from experience... Okay, you get your you experience your animal soul first, your godly soul second. Okay, um, it's kind of like if you have a body, right? First you see someone's body, then you get to know their person. First you experience your animal soul, and only then you become aware of the godly soul, hopefully possible. However, the the godly soul has its own makeup, and the animal soul is kind of like a shadow image of it. So if you really want to understand things, the better place to start is the godly soul. So we introduce the animal soul, because that's the, the more basic level that we're familiar with. Then we move to the godly soul. Then we get a thorough, richer, rich understanding of the godly soul, and then we see in what way the animal soul is parallel and yet different. And then we put them all together and see the mess that ensues. All right? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.